Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, welcome, friends. And uh, do make sure you subscribe wherever you listen. Please leave us a review, five stars. Um, We love all that. Feel free to join the conversation and ask questions by using our hashtag um, on Twitter. The hashtag is ZealotsPod. You can also feel free to email us. Um, You can can find us uh, at zealots at comment.org. And uh, you can expect a good exchange. So, yeah, why don't we get started by way of introduction? You know, Shadi and I are, are good friends. Uh, that said, perhaps we shouldn't be. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Shadi's a Muslim. I research and teach theology, while Shadi researches and teaches in the area of political science and international relations. Um, so we come from pretty different perspectives, but this is our space to work those things out and discuss politics, religion, democracy, and how we live together with deep difference. And Shadi, today we've yep. got a good, uh, we've got a guest and a good, spicy topic to explore. So uh, why don't you uh, introduce our guest? Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. So we have a treat today for all of you. Um, our guest is Jonathan Brown, who is a professor at Georgetown. You see him waving there. He is, you know, and I'm not just saying this because he's a friend. I do think he is one of the most important and influential scholars of Islam and Islamic history around today. Um, He is a Muslim convert. Uh, He is the author of a book, which is an excellent primer on Islamic law and the Islamic tradition. It's called Misquoting Muhammad. We'll include a link to that in the show notes, highly recommended. And his most recent book has a provocative title of Islam and Slavery. We'll also include a link to that in the show notes. The topic we're going to be talking about today, I'm excited about it, but I'm also slightly apprehensive because I don't like thinking about certain things in the Islamic tradition. Sometimes it's better not to know and to not overthink things. But one of one of Jonathan's big contributions is pushing us to contend with maybe uncomfortable things in the Islamic tradition. One of those is slavery. Islam, or, or at least the Quran and, and the Prophet Muhammad, did not expressly uh, forbid or prohibit slavery. Slavery is there in Islamic history. And as we'll find out, it's also in Christian history and Jewish history. We'll get to all that. But maybe just to share more of a personal perspective on this, I think the bigger set of questions here is, how do we understand or reinterpret the past in light of what we know now? Are we morally superior today than the Prophet Muhammad was, or even Jesus Christ was, because Jesus Christ did not um, forbid slavery either? So we have a bit of a conundrum here, and what do we do about that? How do we con- re- how do we reconcile our sense of morality that we hold to so strongly? today versus what was acceptable and what was customary 
centuries ago, 14 centuries ago, and, and so forth. And I'll just quote one thing that Jonathan says in his book on Islam and slavery, which I think gets at this conundrum in a really profound way. He says, if slavery is a manifest and universal evil, why did no one seem to realize this until relatively recently? Question mark. It's a good question. He also says, I believe slavery is wrong. What interests me is explaining how almost all moral authorities in human history thought it was right. There's a lot of implications here, but maybe that's a good place to start. Um, because let's imagine if we went back in time and we did talk to Prophet Muhammad or Jesus Christ, um, would we really get like all worked up and say, hey, Prophet, um, hey, divine figure, you are wrong and we are morally superior. Like, just maybe try to imagine that as a kind of, like, um, hypothetical scenario, and that, I think, gets across the level, the kind of puzzle. So, ja uh, so, Jonathan, with that, over to you. How, how would you respond to some of these earlier points as, you know, m many of our listeners will be believing Christians, also um, believing Muslims, people who are religiously oriented, and they may avoid looking at the past for precisely these reasons. Uh, well, yeah, thanks, guys, for inviting me. Um, uh, Shadi, I always like talking about this kind of stuff because, you know, you're not afraid to talk about these things. I, I think that um, there's two points to keep in mind. One is that the question we're asking is a much bigger question than about slavery, right? Slavery is the thing that forces us to ask the question but the question is really much bigger um which is how do we think about our the, the authority that the past has over us if we're going to hold certain moral convictions today uh and it's a in in some ways like and this is not a muslim problem right this is not a christian problem this is a this is not an american problem this is basically an everybody problem and um, and actually, for a lot of communities and traditions, it was actually slavery that forced this as well, right? Um, it's not a. It's the the issue, the moral problem of slavery, isn't just something that let's say Christians or Muslims or Jews have had to wrestle with. It's actually strongly influenced how people come to view their scripture, right? So it's our. Are more, you know, imagine you go into a cocktail party today and you're like, oh, yeah, I think slavery is fine. I mean, imagine what would happen. You know, imagine the reaction, uh, the, the, the moral evil, the profound trans historical moral evil of slavery is a fixed point in our discourse. It's, it's a it's maybe like one of the few things that you can't question. Right. So Holocaust is bad. Slavery is bad. Like that's that's, you know, maybe two things that just no one can disagree on. And remain kind of a person in good standing in our society and in the kind of global Western society more broadly. Um, on the other hand, there's no I, I don't know of any religious or philosophical tradition that prior to let's be let's be generous. Let's say 1700, but really probably more 1800. But let's say 1700. OK. Prior to the year 1700 of our common era, common era was not 
totally comfortable with slavery, didn't endorse it or defend it or consider it natural or tolerate it, right? So all of like the human heritage prior to 1700 is essentially morally unacceptable according to our standards today. And um, it, this is a, you know, it, it's sort of um, mind boggling that people don't have to confront this all the time. Um, and they tend to get very upset when they are confronted with it. And a great place, you can see this, all, you know, constantly being performed in our society with these debates over statues. You know, um, I don't know if you want to play the, the, the clip from, from Fox News, but I'll just give an introduction about why I wanted to mention this is because when, when I said, so I wrote this book on Islam and slavery in, I think I started in twenties, uh, the very end of 2016. So basically after Trump had been elected right around the time of his inauguration, inauguration, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say coronation, inauguration. So like the, um, because uh, ISIS, the ISIS phenomenon had happened, and this had really caused a, a lot of Muslims big problems because ISIS had been taking these, you know, sex slaves and reintroducing slavery and saying, hey, like slavery is in the Quran and the precedent of the Prophet Muhammad and slavery is in the Sharia. So why are you guys all upset? Like what? And Muslims didn't really have an answer for this, you know, and um, and this was constantly in the newspaper. And this was causing a lot of Muslims serious, uh, you know, crisis in their faith. And uh, so I wanted to kind of write a response to this or try and, and I answer these questions myself. And w when I did so, like, I found that when I tried to talk about this, you know, everybody would get upset at me. Like, because, <laughs> and they'd say, people would say things like academics, scholars would say things like, uh, the Quran prohibited slavery. And I'd be like, no, no, it didn't. It didn't. I mean, look, I understand you want to, you you know, you want to make Muslims look good. You're not an Islamophobe. You know, you're trying to push back against Trump and the Muslim ban and all this. I understand you have a good good intentions, but like you you can't say something that's not true. You know, you can't say that the Quran prohibited slavery because it didn't, right? Um, and uh, people would say things like, you know, slavery is. I remember this one Muslim guy was debating with me, and he was like, "You need to say." that slavery is wrong throughout history. And I said, I was like, look, I don't know what you, what is the case? Is either the prophet, because the Quran allows slavery, the prophet had slaves, right? Um, at least so, at some time in his life. And so either that's wrong, or you're telling me that the Quran and the prophet Muhammad did something that you consider to be morally evil, in which case, you're not Muslim anymore, right? That like the cause you to exit Islam. And even if it, if it weren't like an official, uh, you know, statement that would make you not Muslim, why would any of us take like religious advice from somebody who thinks, who thought slavery was okay? Like, why? Well, I mean, if somebody came today and was like, Hey, I want to be president, by the way, I think slavery is fine. Would, would that person like get very far in political life? I mean, or, or public moral life. Right. So, um, the, the, this, I was like, this is, I was like, how can you ask me to do something that you know is going to either result in me in a sort of a, 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 an absurd statement? Either I'm going to deny that history, 
or I'm going to deny my own religion. And I mean, how, how can we have this discussion? And when I when I confronted the guy about this, he said, well, I, 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 won't, I won't discuss this in public, only in private. I was like, well, why are you asking me to make this public declaration? You know, um, Shadi, I don't want to interrupt you. I just want to f- finish by saying like, you know, so when I was, I remember when I was sort of trying to write the book, this book on Islam and slavery, I decided to write. And I was, I remember I was in Turkey that summer. It was the summer of 2017. And there was the Charlottesville protests. And uh, it was about the, uh, the statue of Thomas Jefferson in uh, Charlottesville, the University of Virginia. He was the founder of University of Virginia. And, you know, he's, of course, the guy who wrote, we believe all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera, with certain inalienable rights to free life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And yet here's a guy who owned slaves, who had children with a slave, female slave of his, et cetera. And um, so did, you know, all these other a significant number of the, the founding fathers. And, uh, and then I remember watching um, Donald Trump speak about this and he, he, he kind of summarized this in a way that only he just like a kind of with succinctness only he could. He says, George Washington had slaves. You're going to take down statues of George Washington. And then you just think about the sort of what it would require for the American like political, the American polity to disassociate itself from George Washington. Just the sheer like toponymical challenge of changing (laughs) names of everything, you know, and yet that's the logical conclusion. Like if you think slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil throughout space and time, somebody who is complicit in that is a is complicit with evil and they're not a qualified moral uh, role model right they're not qualified to give us leadership or advice or anything i like what you said and and i want to bring us back to that that statement which i think is so important i'd love to key in on is this is a universal human problem which is that we every movement every political movement every religious movement has heroes uh, and those heroes have flaws and how do we wrestle with those historical moments and the clip from Tucker Carlson, which I'd love to, to play real quick here kind of captures that, uh, you know, in a, in a punchy way that only dear, dear, good American citizen, Tucker Carlson can, can capture. So let's, let's play that clip. And then I want to dig into that. Cause it's, it's a question that haunts me as a Christian as well. Um, you know, how do we deal with these, um, the sins of our past? So let's, let's play that clip. President said more attention than it will likely get. Yesterday, a mob tore down a Civil War soldier's memorial in Durham, North Carolina. Police stood idly by and liberals across the country applauded it. Which statues are next, the president asked today. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. That's not a joke. Suddenly, it's a serious question. Thomas Jefferson indisputably was a great man. He was the author of the Declaration of Independence, founder of the University of Virginia, and maybe most importantly, the greatest thinker in American political history. All of us live in his shadow. Unfortunately, however, Jefferson was also a slaveholder. That's real. It's a moral taint. We ought to remember it. But to the fanatics on the left, it means that Jefferson must be purged from public memory forever. The demands are already coming that we do that. In 2015, students at the University of Missouri demanded the removal of a Jefferson statue. Two years ago on CNN, anchor Ashley Banfield suggested the Jefferson Memorial in Washington might have to go. Needless to say, there is literally no limit when you start thinking like this. Last year, hundreds of activists in New York demanded the statue of Theodore Roosevelt at the American Natural History Museum be dismantled. 
They argued that Roosevelt was a racist. That's the standard. Nobody is safe. Watch out, Abraham Lincoln. You're next. Now, to be clear, as if it's necessary, slavery is evil. If you believe in the rights of the individual, it's actually hard to think of anything worse than slavery. But let's be honest, up until 150 years ago, when a group of brave Americans fought and died to finally put an end to it, slavery was the rule rather than the exception around the world, and had been for thousands of years, sadly. Plato owned slaves. So did Muhammad, peace be upon him. Many African <laughs> tribes held slaves and sold them. The Aztecs did too. Before he liberated Latin America, Simon Bolivar owned slaves. Slaveholding was so common among the North American Indians that the Cherokee brought their slaves with them on the Trail of Tears. And it wasn't something they learned from the European settlers. Indians were holding and trading slaves when Christopher Columbus arrived. And by the way, he owned slaves too. Now, none of this is a defense of the atrocity of human bondage. It is an atrocity. The point, however, is that if we're going to judge the past by the standards of the present, if we're going to reduce a person's life to the single worst thing he ever participated in, we had better be prepared for the consequences of that. And here's why. 41 of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence held slaves. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, had a plantation full of slaves. George Mason, the father of the Bill of Rights, also owned slaves, unfortunately. But does that make what they wrote illegitimate? If these men were simply racist villains, and that's all they were, then the society they created is as evil as they were. There's no reason to respect its traditions or uphold its laws. <laughs> so I think the... what's So he... I think it's, you have the kind of slavery conundrum um framed here and by the way it's good because in a, in a muslim session like a meeting you should have someone say call the god's peace and blessings down upon the prophet muhammad and so tucker did that for us so that's good our our medjlis are is is acceptable and as a muslim learning session i was surprised by that and i chuckled <laughs> a bit i assume he was being ironic yeah. but well, i wasn't entirely are, sure who knows he's he maybe he's you know he's surprising sometimes What's fascinating is actually he he doesn't really address the question. He, he does a bait and switch because hmm. what he says, I can't remember if, if it was in that. I'm fairly sure it's in that segment. What he says is he says slavery is evil. He says, in fact, if you believe in individual rights, there's not much worse than slavery. OK, so but then he says slavery is a moral taint. So. It, you have, on one hand, you have a statement that says it's, it's an evil th basically throughout space and time. There's not much worse than it. On the other hand, when it's associated with Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, it's a taint. It's not, you know, it, it sort of takes the luster off a little bit, right? That That is a bait and switch. You can't have both these things, right? So imagine if you say something is evil and someone is complicit in it, like imagine, you know, cannibalism or something or human sacrifice or child sacrifice or something you don't you don't you wouldn't have somebody do child sacrifice and then be like but they're a great man they're a great person <laughs> right so there's there's an actually he does not have a way of dealing with this either you say this is a tr evil throughout space and time and we're going to act on that we're going to say someone who's complicit in this or who defends it is disqualified morally or we're going to say um that it's actually not a disqualifying evil throughout space. It, it, it's essentially we're going to have to reduce the sort of level of evil that we're giving it and in a in a kind of real transhistorical sense. Similarly, you know, something, Matthew, you said earlier, um, you said, you know, we have heroes, but they have flaws. 
you know, yeah, um, you know, a flaw is, you know, um, they make a bad decision. Um, they were, you know, maybe they're a great president, but they're not the best father or something like that. You know, uh, being okay with slavery does not qualify as a flaw in our in our moral sentiments today. I guess what you're saying is it's not a mistake. It's not a whoopsie to be uh, to be a slaveholder. Yeah, right? it's a it's a real it's a serious problem, right? And uh, then the it's all it's interesting because another person who's tried to deal with this a kind of right leaning person recently is Bill Maher on his show um, when he talks about I guess some historian wrote um, an op ed and uh, about presentism and. One thing I like about Bill Maher is that although he's incredibly Islamophobic and hates religion, I don't agree with him on that, is that he's he really does kind of intellectually engage with things in a way that very few other other people do. And so he he talks about this idea of presentism and the idea that we're kind of holding the past to the standards of the present. And but his way of dealing with that is he sees it as absurd because it's like it's like us looking back at our childhood and kind of blaming ourselves for something we did when we were 10 or when we were 15 or something like that. You know, we got to, you know, look, everybody makes mistakes. We can't hate ourselves for our past selves for what we did. The problem is that's not how we view our past, right? If you're a Christian, right? Or if you're a Muslim or if you're an American or whatever, and in theory, like all these different traditions who view their past, either in terms of scripture or some kind of storehouse of wisdom as having really strong authority over our present your past is not infancy your past is not childhood your past is in fact the best time we're living in a degenerate era compared to the time of the companions of the prophet muhammad or the time when jesus was in the world right i mean th this is we're we're living in like a shadow of of a, a great era and uh we look back to that past to instruct us. We don't see it as something that we can forgive ourselves for. Yeah. So a couple things I, I want to touch on here. There's a lot. Maybe the first thing is that in hearing this, I feel like my own apologetic instincts are coming out. And let me just give voice to them as an example of what probably many Muslims would say in response to this discussion. They'd probably, as I'm about to right now, make a certain set of clarifications that the prophet wasn't necessary. So in the Quran, and you can talk more about this if you'd like, uh, Jonathan, the Quran encourages the, f the freeing of slaves. There are really incredible and overwhelming incentives for the manumission of slaves. And some scholars argue that, you know, through that kind of natural progression and organic development, you'll have less and less slaves over time so that the Quran and the Prophet's example kind of, um, it, it implants an ethical premise that leads to the emancipation of slaves. That's one interpretation. And I think it's one that like a lot of Muslims will gravitate towards because it allows them to sort of resolve the conundrum. I think there's also major differences between not forbidding slavery and actively supporting it. So that's where it gets a little bit tricky because in many of these cases, whether it's the Prophet Muhammad, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, um, 
they wouldn't have enthusiastically supported or encouraged slavery, uh, to, to my knowledge. And I, I should just mention a couple examples, just in fairness to all of our faiths, so we can be somewhat ecumenical. I did mention earlier that Jesus did not uh, forbid um, slavery. Um, the apostles included slave owners, and Paul um, instructed slaves in Scripture in the New, in the New Testament to, quote-unquote, be submissive to their masters and to obey them as you would Christ. St. Augustine offered various justifications for slavery tied to the concept of original sin. For a significant period of time, the Catholic Church was a leading slave owner. Um, Catholic theorists in the natural law tradition did spend many, many centuries finding justifications for slavery, so on and so forth. So I just want to be clear that we do have these various shades of either not condemning, but that's maybe not the same as enthusiastically supporting. But still, if you're seeing slavery as the pinnacle of sin, these distinctions presumably won't matter. You have to condemn something if it is one of the greatest sins in human history. Um, and that's where maybe it's not about flaws, because, you know, for example, we, we as Muslims don't uh, believe the prophet is capable of major error or sin on theological matters. He can have more, and you know, scholars debate whether he can have like more minor flaws and and be capable of just kind of some more ordinary things like that. But when it comes to major sins, we as Muslims don't believe that the prophet is capable of committing major sins, and presumably Christians would say something similar about the apostles. I just wanted to put that out there, and feel free, uh, Jonathan, to react to any of that. Again, like I. I my way of resolving, I call it the slavery conundrum, right? So um, the slavery conundrum is a conundrum, a conundrum we create for ourselves in, let's say, kind of modern global Western society, right? Where you basically have three axioms that cannot be individually, none of which can be rejected, but all of which cannot be held together at the same time, right? It's impossible. So the first is slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil across space and time. Um, slavery was wrong 2,000 years ago. Slavery was wrong in Arabia. Slavery was wrong in South America. It's anything called slavery is, is evil throughout space and time. doesn't matter. Two, uh, all slavery is slavery, right? There's no, like, good slavery. Yeah, it's not that bad. It was okay. It was more like, you know, being a servant. There's no... I mean, again, just imagine going to a cocktail party and someone's talking about slavery and you're like, yeah, but it wasn't that bad. You know, his, his owner was a really nice guy and, you know, he treated them very well and stuff. I mean, just imagine the kind of what would happen in that situation. The third, so the second axiom is all slavery is slavery. The third is that our pasts, our past has some kind of moral or religious authority over us or legal authority over us, right? We we are beholden to our past and so we want to be beholden to our past we want to look to it uh, as an authority and you can't have these three things either you say that free, and you'll see like uh, you know biblical commentary even today will say that um you know slavery in the old testament it was not like american you know 
plantation slavery. It was more like servants and stuff like that. It wasn't that severe. So in that case, they're getting out of it by saying not, not all slavery is slavery, right? So you're violating the second, the second axiom. Um, the, uh, you could say, well, um, back then it was, it was okay. That would be violating the first axiom. Or you could say, take down all the statues. We don't care. Yeah, get rid of them all. We, we should not be honoring slave owners and get rid of the third axiom, you know, which is to say, and this is, by the way, basically what William Lloyd Garrison, a famous, you know, 19th century uh, American abolitionist who was most active in the 1830s. And he had a magazine, a, a, a journal called The Liberator. He said about the Bible, he says, if it's between slavery and the Bible, the Bible has to go. Right. But it's interesting that in The Liberator, in one issue, he's talking about George Washington having slaves. And he says, well, yeah, but, you know, we, we don't really think he meant it. He didn't really believe in this. Like, so he, he actually has an orthodoxy, right? He might be religiously willing to disassociate himself with his tradition, but he politically can't. You know, he can't go against the kind of patron saint or whatever, the, the founder of our polity. Uh, which is interesting. And by the way, in case you have any ideas about George Washington, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Never Caught about the Washingtons had a female slave who ran away when they were in Philadelphia and they spent the rest of their lives hunting her down. They were not like, oh, it's okay. You know, we don't really like slavery anyway, so it's good. God bless her. No, -uh. <laughs> they it's called Never Caught about a slave named Ona Judge. I recommend reading it. Huh. So I think that we have these axioms that we're committed to, and very few of us are willing to make the sacrifice to actually make uh, make them coherent. Um, and I'm not saying that, like, I don't, I mean, I'm I'm Muslim. I, will, I, I cannot, I refuse to say that what my revelation and what my prophet allowed is evil throughout space and time. I, I, I won't say that. It would make me not Muslim. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but, uh, you know, other people are not as comfortable with this. So Jonathan, we want to encourage people to, to read the book itself, but if you would give us a little bit of preview of how you yourself wrestle with this conundrum and how, how you, how you, how do you emerge out and, uh, make sense of all this? Yeah. So what's the resolution basically? Yeah. <laughs> give it to us. I feel, like, I feel like we just skipped the whole podcast and went to like the, the resolution, but what, <laughs> No big deal. Well, no, I, I, mean, just, I think Christians have their own ways of wrestling with these kinds of things, but I, I'm genuinely curious. I mean, it's really interesting because you can see um, Muslims in the 20th and 21st centuries essentially doing the same thing that Christians in the 19th and early 20th century were doing. Like you can, it's like they're following the same script. And it's not, it, that's not because they're copycats or on It's like, this is... This is structurally what you have to do if you're presented with a revealed source that you look to as guidance from God and that is clashing with something that you are contending in the present is an evil. Like that is, it's, uh, the, the, the process is, is going to be the same, right? So what's really interesting is to look at the debates that happen in the U.S. Uh, between like founding fathers or... So, the, for example, there's one of the founding fathers, Benjamin Rush, is, is a, was a committed abolitionist. So he's very anti-slavery. And he has, um, you know, it's the signatory of, one of, the, of the Declaration of Independence, et cetera. And he's, 
has this exchange of letters with this um, southern slave owner. And the slave owner is like, um, look, the, the Bible allows slavery. And Benjamin Rush says, well, okay, yeah, it's in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to sort of, he was this like force of liberation and wants us to, and like sets us on the trajectory to end this. Like, yeah, he didn't say it's wrong um, because if he had, it would have been too disruptive and to uh, cause, you know, too much, you know, uh, strife or something. And the slave owner's like, okay, um, you're telling me that like the son of God comes to earth, right? Jesus, the guy who's like never makes any, makes any waves, right? And he didn't just have, he didn't just say like, hey, slavery's wrong. Like maybe you can't get rid of it right now, but it's, it's morally evil, right? Um, so he, you're basically saying the son of God on earth doesn't have the courage of his convictions to say this thing is wrong. There's no answer to that. Similarly, you can engage in what um, Shadi's suggesting, which again is a, a, a Christian response and a Muslim response, which is essentially what's called trajectory hermeneutics, which is to say that, yeah, the, let's say the Quran or the Bible doesn't say slavery is evil, get rid of it, but it create it puts us on a trajectory towards that, right? It kind of sets up a, a system of values or priorities that eventually will allow us to realize that when it's, if it's feasible. The problem with that is it allows us to make sense of moral progress. What it doesn't do is explain how God could ever have allowed something that's evil, right? So the problem isn't us talking about how it's good not to have slaves or how we should end slavery. Like that's that's a theological discussion that and a, and a hermeneutic discussion that Muslims and Christians have been able to have amongst themselves very productively, right? Uh, which can be a separate topic. But that's not the issue. The issue is, if slavery is an evil across space and time, why did God allow it even in the Old Testament? Right? It's not good enough to say Jesus came and fulfilled the law and was a new law that replaced the law of the Old Testament, et cetera, et cetera. If, if you believe the Old Testament is the word of God or revealed wisdom, how did God ever allow that? if it was an evil across space and time. And there's no answer to that, except either to say it was okay back then, or it wasn't as, as bad as the slavery that you think is really bad in America, or something that a lot of Christians, a conclusion a lot of Christians came to, the Old Testament is not the actual word of God, right? It's not actually the timeless wisdom and revealed teachings of God to, to mankind it's something that was revealed to a specific people at a specific time in their own words, with their own worldview, uh, and is not actually binding on people uh, in other times and places. So with those options, which answer would you? So, how, yeah, I mean, in some sense, this is this is the challenge. I mean, I have a sense of where you where you land on this, but maybe just spell it out a little bit more of Yeah. So I can't tell I can't tell if Matthew is like about to combust or is like <laughs> I'm doing mellow about here. this. It's like I don't I'm know. Let's see best. where this guy's let's see where this guy's going. I don't know. I mean, so I don't want to foreclose on Christian responses. Yeah. I'm I'm giving my take on them and then um and by the way, the reason I'm even bringing them up is because as it's actually a common script, right? It's a common, uh, their sh approaches shared between Muslim and Christians. There might be like a little, 
tweaking here and there, but I, I think they're fairly similar. So, uh, you know, a fun fact on on this point for people, one of the great um, Muslim theologians of the 20th century, someone who I've written about in my work, Rashid Rida, actually drew very directly <clears throat> from Western arguments where he basically said that the Quran couldn't have expressly forbid slavery because it doing that would potentially lead to civil strife and chaos because slavery was so interwoven in the fabric of these pre-modern societies. And he used the American Civil War as an illustration that even in the West, trying to prematurely abolish slavery can lead to civil strife on a massive scale, which is just absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah, I. it's interesting because, I mean, I, I don't want to say like if the Civil War was a good thing or bad thing, I'm not going to get into that. But it is interesting that I, I've read that with the money that was spent on this, like the Northern War effort, they could have literally like bought all, like essentially compensated the entire Southern economy for its slave economy, um, which is interesting. So earlier, for those who are just listening and, and not watching on on YouTube, uh, I was sending a variety of nonverbal cues that I was getting uncomfortable or had something to say. And Jonathan very, very thoughtfully <laughs> uh, saw that. So yeah, I, I do have a number of smaller quibbles with uh, what each of you have said about Christianity and slavery. And I don't want to get lost in the quibbles about this or that, but more sort of this broader, um, this broader discussion about um, guilt and, and um, how we think about the the failures of of um, people who are are very important to us, and I guess to just interject on the Christianity side, um, as a Christian, my faith does not hang on whether or not Abraham was a good guy, or David was a good guy, or Peter or Paul were good guys. My faith hangs on whether or not Jesus was a good guy, and. Um, so the, the Bible itself is filled with stories about the failures of these people. Um, Abraham lying and being a coward, um, in one story, Peter, um, once again, being a coward, uh, and lying, um, scripture itself is filled with the moral failures of our heroes, you know, King David, um, committing adultery and murder, you know? Um, and we sing his psalms. Um, it really does hang much more on the person of Jesus. And so, I, it's what's interesting to me in this conversation is how there are so many similarities between Islam and Christianity wrestling with this issue, but there's also some really important differences. For example, our understanding of Scripture itself um, that. One, that scripture comes directly, it is the speech of God, and the other that uh, human beings, many human beings wrote the Bible over centuries in very different contexts, in, in exile and in, um, and in kingdoms and uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Um, so you have sort of this wild diversity in the Bible of writers who are themselves flawed and finite. Uh, and that's a, that's a different kind of holy text to wrestle with. Um, 
that makes the conversation a little bit different, I think. Um, and so anyways, just, just my own little reflection on there are moments when I listen to the two of you talking where I completely identify with the, the moral wrestling that you're having with the legacy of Muhammad. Uh, and then there are parts where I just can't identify at all. Um, so for example, the fact that Abraham had slaves, that doesn't bother me at all in, in sort of the broader, that doesn't create a moral crisis for me, um, because my faith doesn't hang on him, um, being perfect. And to just, then just to make the larger thing of, you know, this discussion about the, the, the moral standing of George Washington um, and uh, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and, and these other figures. What I'm thinking about in terms of our culture today is what is this longing for our heroes to be morally pure? What is this longing that they have to, um, or they will be canceled. What's going on in our political culture that we, we long for this level of purity from these people, that it is so scandalizing um, that they had a different moral vision from us. Um, it, seems, it seems that something different has happened over the last 20 years, um, that there is, it, it has a feeling of uh, a sort of desire for a, a heightened level of moral purity um, that you know, for, for me, I, I love David's Psalms. You know, those are very important poetry and prayer to me. Um, and I can enjoy those things knowing that he did some abominable things, but it seems that our American culture today can't abide that. And I'm just wondering, I'd, I'd love to hear your reflections on what is it about our political culture today that we cannot, we cannot abide uh, yeah, moral diversity or development today. So. I think there are, you're correct, there are really important differences between Muslim approach and a Christian approach to some of these questions. For example, in the Islamic tradition, a pro prophets are morally uh, upstanding, right? They're, so the story of David and Bathsheba is not acceptable from the, from the point of view of the vast majority of Muslim theologians, right? Um, uh, on the other hand, I would say that, uh, you say your faith doesn't hang on Abraham being a good guy. Okay. But what about the law, right? So the law that's revealed to Moses is divine guidance. I think even from a Christian perspective, uh, you could say it's superseded divine guidance, right? It's divine guidance that is later superseded by, um, with the coming of Christ, but that law allows slavery and tells the, the Israelites to take slaves and tells you know, it allows the Israelites to have slave concubines, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I would, and again, I'm not, I really, don't, I really don't like trying to trigger crises of faith in other people. So <laughs> oh, I'm not fine, trying man. to do that, but like, oh. um, you know, I, I won't, I won't push this. I no, would just say it. that uh, I, I'm a seminary professor, so I'm used to yeah, so, these kinds of dialogues. This is, you're not so, triggering me. I bro. mean, <laughs> I would say that, uh, by 
just so funny, you know, the other day, my, my, my kids watched the, the don't tase me bro clip yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was having to go back and like, tell them about the don't tase me bro. So the, um, like, I, I think that my contention and I can, I'm not Christian, so I'm not going to push this, right. I would just say my, what I've noted is that I think that there are more weeds to wrestle with and get out of on this than a lot of the Christian explanations suggest. The the other thing I, I think it's interesting you mentioned is this this notion of a, a quest for purity or a demand of purity in our current age. And I think that is certainly uh, the case. And I know uh, Shadi and I almost certainly are on the same page in this. I, I hope I'm not like in, in, implicating him in this. But I mean, like, you know, when you're saying that a movie that came out like 10 years ago is didn't held up hold up well and like can't be watched now you know maybe you're being a little puritanical about demands on the past on the other hand i would say that when we say when people say i don't want i will not look up to someone who thought slavery was fine that's not like a you know being too demanding i mean that's a again it is a it is a fixed point of inquiry in our discourse today that slavery is a transhistorical, gross, intrinsic moral evil. Um, so saying that I don't want to respect or venerate someone who engaged in that, even if they did other things that were good, uh, that's not a, I think, a kind of outlandish claim or outlandish demand. But Jonathan, no, it seems that no one's really willing to take that pre premise to its logical conclusion, because if they really believe that, that you can't take moral advice from anyone who was complicit in slavery or didn't condemn it even, then you would have to basically remove the entire history of human existence before, as you said, uh, circa 1700. So you would lose every single philosophical and religious tradition. So I would maybe just, I would wonder if they're, if they're holding to the, if, if they have the courage of their own convictions. Yeah. So it, it's interesting you say that when, when this happened, like when I can't remember, Oh, it was when the Charlottesville thing was happening. Like that, you that moment, like if you, I have so many screenshots from that time because you just get like this incredible dis display of every possible point that could be made in this debate. And there are some, like there was this one guy who is like a black intellectual activist and he had this, kind of tweets or memes or something. And it was like, uh, um, racists. And they're saying, oh, so we're going to get rid of the statue of George Washington. And then it's like black people respond. Yes. And then the racists are like, dot, dot, dot. We don't know how to respond. So there are some people. And I think, I mean, think about this from like a kind of Marxist march of history towards some kind of perfection, Shadi, right? Uh, there's no problem with getting rid of our past, right? Our past is just a is just a a parade of failures, and that that we're we're marching towards a, a more perfect future in theory. So we have no attachment to the past. So there are people who, from a variety of kind of social justice activist leftist perspectives, and I'm not trying to just sort of lump all that together and dismiss it. I'm just trying to for the sake of convenience, right? I, I think are actually quite willing to pay that. Uh, price would do it happily to, to get rid of all the statues and all this heritage. So Jonathan, in the, in the modern moral imagination, uh, moral progress is possible 
potentially even inevitable. I'm curious as a Muslim, um, what are, what are your thoughts or feelings in terms of moral history? Do you, do you think moral progress is possible or, or is, is happening or is inevitable? So, I mean, this is a really, uh, I mean, this is the point I wanted to get into actually when we were talking earlier, because when you say like kind of what is the solution to the slavery conundrum, um, you, like what I would say is, and again, I say this, if someone wants to go and get me in trouble, I'm going to say I have a right to my religious beliefs, right? I, I refuse to, I refuse to condemn my prophet and my scripture. And if somebody wants to say, Jonathan Brown is a bad person because of that, then I guess, you know, I'm guilty as charged, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to say that the Quran allows something evil and the prophet did something morally evil. I will not say that. Okay. So what I'm, in terms of those three um, axioms, I would actually disagree with the first two. I would say one, slavery is not gross intrinsic evil throughout space and time. And part of the reason you can say that is because not all slavery is slavery. I don't think that all things that we call in history slavery are actually the same and that they deserve the same moral judgment. I think that some of them are a lot less severe than others. Okay. There could be certain things like the way that a field hand is treated in Georgia getting whipped and raped and all this stuff like that. Um, yeah, I'd say that is a gross intrinsic moral evil throughout space and time. And I think that if that's done to anybody in history, that's evil. But I don't think that um, all slavery throughout human history, things that we call slavery today in the past, can be uh, labeled with that moral judgment. Okay, then here's the second problem, right? Okay, Professor Brown, you say, how do you explain my, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian, right? And I feel in my gut that slavery is wrong. Like there's a lot of Muslims. Shadi's probably met these people. Um, you know, they'll say things like, if you tell me that the prophet had slaves or that, that he allowed slavery, I won't be Muslim anymore. Like they're like, for them, the, 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 the moral certainty of the evil of slavery is fixed and, and any other commitment they make has to fit with that right so that's the that's the immovable point and any uh, faith commitment or confession they make has to accept passive tailor to that right um so how do you explain if you're telling me slavery is not as gross and, and intrinsic evil throughout space and time explain to me how i feel such certainty that it is and that gets to the question of moral progress how how is it that um you, us three, right? I'm going to bank, I'm going to guess that all three of us, when we watch 12 Years a Slave or Roots or Amistad, when that guy is saying, like, give us us free, all of us were probably, our eyes were like pouring water. Okay. I'm just going to, you know, and guess we're, we're not heroes for this. We're just Americans in good moral standing who've been raised well in our society. Okay. So if you're having that reaction, how can you like that's not like how can you then go and say that this in the past was not evil like how can you, your moral conviction today is testimony to to the evil in the past to this the evil of slavery in the past so th my answer to this is uh just because something is felt to be in our gut to be a profound real moral evil doesn't make it that 
morally true throughout history, that a lot of our moral certainties, although we feel that they have to be true for everybody in history, are sim- that's simply not the case, right? So, and this is an interesting, I, I bring this, I, I always tell my, you know, discuss with my students, which is, I'm going to, I would contend, and I don't know if you guys disagree with me, the two things that will turn your stomach, not just, not just you say this is bad, not just you say I disapprove, it's, it's wrong, but really make you sick. Slavery and pedophilia. Am I right? That's fair, I think. Okay, if I say, if I say, hey guys, you know, a guy down the street was brutally murdered two weeks ago. Somebody took his body, chopped it up, and, um, you know, spread it on the lawn. Be like, oh, yeah, that's messed up. But I, I didn't feel anything, right? I mean, murder's wrong, but I don't know. Somebody, <laughs> then you told me a guy on my street, a 50-year-old guy had sex with a six-year-old. Ugh. Like, I, I actually feel something in my stomach. Or you say, like, you know, someone had a slave. There's a slave chained up in his house. Like, like, but here's the thing. All societies in human history have considered murder wrong. Most societies in human history, the vast majority, did not consider slavery wrong and would not consider a 50-year-old guy having sex with, like, getting married to, like, a let's say, a six- or seven-year-old. This was actually totally fine. Uh, even saying that freaks me out, okay? Even, but it's true. St. Augustine, his fiance was 12. <laughs> he was in his 30s, right? Uh, you know, so the, the point, this was complete. And that's not even a big deal. The Prophet Muhammad married a nine-year-old and his critics, people who literally sat around looking for things to criticize him for, especially in his sex life, didn't criticize him for that. No one criticized him for that until the very late 19th century. Do you understand my point, right? Yeah. So it is interesting that the two things that make us morally sick to our stomachs are two things that were actually relatively uncontroversial until the very recent past. Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, So I, I think that one thing that you're saying is that our deepest moral intuitions and convictions can be wrong, just to kind of put it bluntly. We can be wrong about the things that we feel most deeply and resolutely, which has, I think, profound implications if it is, in fact, true. Okay, I I don't want to say they're wrong. They're right in our time, right? So when I say uh, I don't want my daughter to marry, get married when she's nine, like that's not I'm not wrong in saying that. That's actually completely correct in our society because she has to go to school and she's probably immature and she wants to, you know, she has to go to med school and all these other things, blah, 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 right? Or if I say like, I don't think we should have slaves in our time, that's totally correct. It's totally unnecessary, right? We don't, it, it, it's not, it is not chance that humans started to come to a new conclusion about the immorality of slavery at the same time that they were had discovered that you can use fossil fuels to create steam to move stuff and you don't need animals and humans to move stuff anymore like that's not coincidence right even aristotle says in his politics there'll be slavery until looms like the things that we weave cloth until looms move themselves which actually is the case that's basically what happened right so it's the, these moral intuitions are not wrong now they're contingent they're historically contingent yes 
But the intensity with which we feel them makes us makes us just assume like it has to be the case that these are true for all human beings. They're like biological reactions we have that all humans have to have. And then we can't. That's why we're disgusted by the fact that previous people didn't have them. And we're mystified because we don't understand how thinking, sentient, moral, competent, moral thinkers and spiritual reasoners could not have these reactions. There's something wrong with them in the past. Yeah, so I just two two points I want to make, and then I, I want to get Matt's thoughts on this. Um, so I think one way of dealing with this, and, you know, various theologians have made this point, probably the most prominent is Khaled Abul Fadl, that if you see something in Scripture that that provokes this gut reaction, this sense that we can't reconcile our moral convictions to scripture or revealed text, that we can sort of we can sort of suspend judgment, that we actually give up hope in finding a resolution and have faith that in the end, presuming we believe in God, God will give us clarity as to what was ultimately right and wrong. And until that moment of final judgment, we can issue, I think, what he calls a faith-based objection, which is to kind of acknowledge our discomfort, but then suspe- then say that it can't have a resolution. So maybe that's one way of resolving it. And probably in some ways, that's what I would lean towards, a kind of more sophisticated version of shrugging one's shoulders. I know that's not an available option for everyone. The other point I want to make, and, and Matt, this is more relevant to you, but I think it brings us back to some of these bigger questions. Um, you know, with Christian scripture, with the Christian tradition, traditions matter to different degrees. And perhaps in the Christian context, it's it's less central than the discursive Islamic tradition, but still. So if we're talking about, you know, let's say 1,700 years— there is the New Testament, there is the example of Christ, there is his word made flesh, and people who are committing themselves to that for many, many centuries. How do you, I just would want to hear more from a Christian perspective, how do you make sense of the fact that all of the great Christian thinkers who were faithful to Christ were not able to see this flaw, which is and I know that your your faith only hangs on Christ, but presumably people who follow Christ are doing so for what they consider to be legitimate reasons, and they're not coming to the same big definitive conclusions that you are. And I, I'm just curious how you would how you would grapple with that. And maybe related to that, I mean, why didn't Christ himself expressly condemn and forbid slavery? Because that is the question that was posed to Benjamin Rush, and I'm not I'm actually not sure what the answer to that could possibly be. Because unlike the Prophet Muhammad, if Christ is divine, if he is God, uh, son of God, and and has this kind of definitive sovereignty and authority, presumably there would be no obstacle to him proclaiming this in a clear way, but he did not. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful questions. Um, I think that one thing to say is um, 
I think to your first point, it, it actually speaks to what I was thinking and feeling a lot listening to Jonathan, um, was I don't, um, I don't feel, a an, a sense of urgency to resolve this moral conundrum in, with quite the level of intensity. Um, because there are so many of these questions. Why did, why did God allow slavery? Why does God allow war? Why does God allow pain or suffering? If God is omnipotent, God could have done all of these things. Um, so my faith is filled with mystery and questions that God has decided not to give me the resolution resolution to. So I'm not, I'm not so haunted by, um, the things my, my forefathers have done, um, in that, in sort of an ex and that's what was going on with sort of this contemporary desire for moral purity. Um, and so I think, yeah, this is, this is too broad of a statement, but I think that in general, the Christian imagination might make space for more moral mystery. Um, than the Islamic moral imagination. And I'd be, I'd be interested to hear your, your reflections on, on that, but sort of the moral messiness of life and the sense that I, I hang on the, the goodness and holiness of God. Um, and that, and that, that is, that God is steadfast in God's love and justice and mercy. Um, and mysteriously, God continues to work with morally flawed human beings and cultures throughout time and history because God is gracious. Um, and, um, and I don't know why God does not come and immediately set everything right, right now, or in 1800 America or in the year 100 in, in Rome. I don't know why God is not making those things. And in the Christian tradition, we have this word Maranatha, which means come Jesus quickly, come quickly, you know, stop this. <laughs> um, and so we have to live with this mystery of why, why do we live in this time of God's patience? God is being patient with, with evil and injustice and violence and, that is a mysterious question, but we, we rest in knowing that God is good and just and is wise. And so, um, that may be an intellectual cop-out, right? So that might be just unacceptable in the academy to sort of say, well, it's mysterious. Um, but that's sort of my, my initial thing, um, in terms of why Jesus didn't condemn slavery outright or why Abraham didn't or David or Paul. Um, I think that what I would say is um, Jesus did not condemn uh, the Roman empire for wars of aggression. He did not condemn the gladiatory games. Uh, he did not condemn prostitution. Um, he did not condemn a wide variety of you know, moral evils. Um, and part of that is that he's within a moral universe of first century Judaism, which already knew a lot of things about what God wanted. 
And so these things, he didn't have to state prostitution is wrong because in the Jewish moral imagination, that was sort of well understood. Um, and I think what's notable about ancient Israelite culture is how restrained um, any kind of engagement with slavery was. Um, I think that's what's historically notable. Um, that's what's curious. That's what causes me to question, how is it um, that slavery was so restricted in ancient Israelite culture? Why did that happen? Where did that come from? Um, because it was so prevalent everywhere. Um, that I, I find that more morally interesting. Um, that's, that seems to me to be the problem to wrestle with. Um, so yeah. And then finally, I don't, I don't see the Bible as a universal rule book where I read a verse and understand that to be a universal rule. I see the Bible to be a complex patchwork of, um, poetry and stories and laws and teachings, um, to a very diverse network of peoples over, you know, a thousand years. And they have very different moral questions that different books and different verses are interacting with. And so I see that, um, if I want to understand what is a a quote unquote biblical understanding of politics, I'm going to get a lot of different insights. Um, and my task is not to sort of grab onto one verse or another, but to put them in conversation with one another to, to say, okay, I see this is being said over here, but I also see this is being said. And so for me, the fact that <clears throat> the very first thing that the people of Israel learn about God their very first encounter with God is that he hates their slavery and wants to save them from it, that he hears their cry and he responds and he liberates them. That's the first thing they learn about God. And that's the thing that they rehearse throughout their history is God saved us from slavery. And whenever moral questions come up, it's always the same thing. It's, treat the widow and the foreigner uh, like yourselves because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. So the, the whole Israelite morality is built off this understanding that God liberated you, so you should liberate others. You should have this community that is a, is a just and liberating force because of who your God is. Um, and so yeah, I mean, those are just some of my reflections, and I I, I welcome uh, pushback on these kinds of things. But um, yeah, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. I mean, I would say, like, so a couple of things I, w I want to mention, um, kind of respond to that, also building on th our earlier discussion, which is, you know, um, when we think about moral progress. I think one of the really important things to ask ourselves is what is the source of morality, right? We, we, especially I think in the United States tend to think, uh, it's interesting. We, we tend to be very actually high minded about morality in the sense that we, we kind of have this expectation that 
there's these moral truths out there that we're kind of accessing and discovering and committing ourselves to. And we talk about things like custom and moral relativism with kind of, they're sort of disdained ideas. You know, moral relativism is kind of lazy. It's, it's, it's cowardly. Um, it's not, it's not a conviction. Uh, and yet I, I think that for me, it's very clear. And this is actually the, the, the general uh, position of Muslim scholars historically, uh, almost all human morality is customary, right? It's based on custom. So God gives us certain rules. Don't steal, don't fornicate, don't eat pork, right? And uh, everything else is customary. It's just, you know, do you tip or not? Um, it, it does, a, does the husband help cook dinner or not? Does the husband change diapers or not? This is all customary. Uh, how You know, when you're parking, you know, if a guy comes in front ways and back ways in the parking space, who gets it? This is all custom, right? So um, morality is dictated by custom. And that's not a bad thing. Like that's when you have a customary moral conviction, that's a real moral conviction. So if I um, if I see uh, somebody yelling at somebody on the street or treating them badly and I'm disgusted by that and I go and intervene, that's based on custom. But that that's a real that's a moral reality like that has legal reality, if we're in a court that has moral reality, right? And um, yet so much of this is actually technological and, and economic. And I, I mean, one example I, I like to give students is the idea of cleanliness. So if you come across somebody who smells really, they're really dirty, they smell, they have horrible BO, they're, you know, there's almost this like moral revulsion that this, this is a dirty person, they're not really well behaved. There's some you know, the idea that you can be smell good and can shower every day or twice a day or whatever and have access to hot water and soap, like this is a very, this is entirely economic and technological reality. There's no moral element to it, right? And yet, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, these guys bathe like once a week, maybe if they're like, you know, once a week, maybe, and then maybe more than once a week. But they probably, you know, the companions of the Prophet, the people that we, the disciples of Jesus probably did not smell that good. We would be shocked by their environment, right? And so I think we have to think about a lot of custom, if, if so much of our morality is actually custom, and so much of custom is actually shaped by technology and, economic, and economics, then we have to understand that that can change. And that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful. It doesn't mean it's not meaningful. It just means that it's not our morality is not constantly just accessing these different moral truths that actually our morality is much more contextual and defined by you know, historical contingencies like economic resources and technology. The The second thing um, I want to say in response to what Matthew is saying is it's interesting that what the first people who start to organize and express abolitionist sentiments are First of all, they're they're Quakers in 1689, 1690 in Pennsylvania, and they are 100% religiously motivated, right? So it's it's very interesting that you have a religious tradition, in this case Christianity, which never had any problem with slavery. Yet the the first real motions of abolitionism and object moral objections to slavery come from people whose in whom the, that objection is 100% religiously motivated, Christian religiously motivated, right? They, and there's two things, there's one important thing to keep in mind here. 
the people who in the late 1600s and early 1700s, and even someone a little bit earlier, like Bartolomeu de las Casas in um, the Caribbean and Spain, who start to really criticize slavery and morally criticize it. They do so because of their direct experience with the Atlantic slave trade and slavery in the Americas. Like there is something the Atlantic slave trade and slave trade in the Americas is a is something that is so violent and so grotesque that it really shocks people. It shocks people, someone like de las Casas or uh, British or French um, Christians in the late 1600s, early 1700s, who in their own countries were not pro- troubled by slavery. It was just, uh, they, it was not a big deal. But when they see the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the uh, plantation, slavery in the Caribbean specifically, it shocks them. And that when you see these uh, Quakers and then later abolitionists in the 1700s in, in the US and uh, Britain, it's almost all, um, what is it called? Uh, nonconformists. So basically different Protestant Puritan groups who are who see their objection to slavery as an expression of their love for their fellow man and the, the unacceptability of how fellow human beings are being treated like this. So we, it's interesting to think about that, that people's motivations to their, their kind of opposition to slavery, their moral objection can come out of that same ethos and that same tradition that had previously essentially approved of this. But what changes is the level of violence and degradation. And similarly, the justification. Most slavery in human history, the vast majority of slavery in human history is not justified racially. It's not justified based on how you look or what your 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 hair is like, right? It's based on you're just someone from not our group that we captured. We don't know, care what you look like, right? The idea that you're saying these people are enslavable because of how they look and because of where they come from also really uh, uh, disgusts some of these early abolitionist figures, and especially kind of enlightenment people like Condorcet and Voltaire. In the case of Islam, what's very interesting, again, a tradition that never had a, um, never declared slavery morally wrong. Interestingly, and I, I write this in my book, Muslim scholars could not say slavery was morally wrong because the Quran allowed it. If the Quran allows it, it can't be morally evil. What they did say very clearly, however, in the pre-modern period, is slavery is harmful. Why is it harmful? It's harmful because it prevents someone from having control over their own decisions. It prevents someone from enjoying the fruits of their own labor. But what they said is that harm is superseded by the property rights of the owner. So that's uh, uh, that's why they, they said it's allowed. The property rights of the owner supersede the harm that's done to the the person. But freeing slaves, and I think Shadi mentioned this, freeing slaves is an obsession in the Quran, the precedent of the Prophet Muhammad, and Islamic law. The the incentives to free slaves, the encouragement to free slaves, the legal obligation to free slaves comes up over and over and over again. So what's interesting is when Muslims start to kind of become morally convinced of abolition as Christians had 
in the Americas and like the British kind of an American Atlantic world in the 1700s, 1800s. They also start to express that through their uh, religious tradition, like the Quranic and prophetic mandate to free slaves. So in both cases, a tradition that allows slavery can also become an engine for emancipation. That's a really great point. And you know, it does bring us a little bit back to the role that custom plays. And I just want to like unspool that a little bit more um, because our customary morality in America today is changing rapidly or seems to be changing rapidly. And if we kind of zero, you know, zero in or out beyond the question of slavery, these debates are applicable to any number of other moral and ethic ethical dilemmas, the things that would have been seen as morally acceptable or tolerable in good company just, I don't know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago are now seen as something approaching evil. Just to give an obvious example, I mean, President Barack Obama did not support um, gay marriage uh, in his uh, uh, when he became president. That only happened later on. Um, that wasn't too long ago. And now... Like the thought that someone as supposedly, you know, liberal and progressive as Obama seemed to be wouldn't have this kind of intuitive moral knowledge. Like it does it does sort of, you know, make I think a lot of people wonder. And then with new with new developments around gender identity and so forth, I think we're going to keep on seeing examples of how standards of moral progress keep on changing and much more rapidly than they used to because of technological advances, social media, um, the way that things spread very quickly in the zeitgeist, almost uh, like a, a sort of contagion. Um, so ideas spread very fast, which means that morality can shift very fast. And I'm curious how this fits into your kind of theory of customary morality, because if you're saying that custom is important and that it's legitimate and that in some sense we should be deferential towards it, can we also say that we as Americans should be deferential to the new customary morality that is emerging just in the last 10 to 15 years? Or is there a moral case for resisting it? Um, I, I can answer, but also I don't want to like shut, shut out Matthew. He's not. He's not in combustion phase. He's in thoughtful phase. But maybe he wants to participate. Yes, I look more relaxed. Yeah. Uh, well, Matt, on this point, I'd be curious what what you'd say to to this. I I I think this goes back to my question about moral progress and do we believe in that? And in general, um, it does not disturb me that our culture shifts morally. Um, I think that's to be expected. What what worries me is a belief in moral progress. I I'm not very convinced. Um, I think that every age has its pet virtues and its pet vices, and I'm not. I don't feel comfortable saying that today we are more uh, moral than France in 1700 or uh, Kenya in you know. In 700, I think that human beings, as a as a Christian, uh, I, I believe that human beings are are sinful and rebellious and, and flawed. 
um, they are also graced with um, and and given a, a conscience. Um, and so I <clears throat> I think what I worry about is this sense that we we need to purify our history because we are morally superior rather than we have some level of reverence for the fact that there might be moral wisdom from the past or from cultures other than our own. Um, so I'm, I get concerned when we are locked into a, a singular custom, you know, this group of people at this age is morally superior to every other as opposed to having a sort of moral curiosity and a moral humility um, to learn from uh, other cultures and other times. Um, I think that's, that's particularly important because I know with great conviction that, you know, my sons and, and my grandsons will, you know, be look back at my life and they, there will be things that they wish I would have, done differently. Um, but hopefully there will be some things that they, that they miss and they would love for that virtue to come alive again in American life. Um, and so I just wanted to dig in on that little piece there that, um, I, I do have concerns about the current cultural milieu that, that believes that it has progressed because I see a culture filled with uh, consumerism, individualism, selfishness, um, and you know, the, the scourge of abortion to me is, is terrible. And so I don't think that we are this morally evolved, um, incredible society in that, in that kind of way. And I, I hear those kinds of notes, um, in our culture today. And that concerns me as opposed to a sort of moral humility and curiosity from, you know, other cultures and, and customs. That's what I get. That's what I get worried about. You know, there was this, I heard this onion like headline, maybe in the early 2010s where it's like Kim Jong-un is like, of course I support gay marriage. I'm not a monster. Right. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, but I think the problem is there is the kind of absolute moral absolutism that people engage in. Um, which is really bizarre because I don't understand like progressive mindsets. I can understand a progressive mindset that says like, that's sort of more humble, kind of like what Matthew is talking about. Like, we're, you know, we, we may have, we might have different views uh, in the, in the next couple of years, but that would make me very merciful towards people in who didn't share that view. Because what I'm basically saying is I'm going to think I was wrong in a week so I really like, but there's the, you have the opposite. You have this in absolute moral certainty about the latest moral conclusion to the extent that anybody who doesn't share it has to be condemned. Absolutely. Which doesn't make any sense to me because we are all going to have to absolutely condemn ourselves for this certainty in another year. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, that's like getting a new iPhone and be like, this is it. This is the best. It's not going to get any better than this. And then like, you know, there's going to be another iPhone. You know what I mean? So I think that the the importance of manners and I in the, the concept in Islamic civilization in Arabic is adab. Uh, it means like not just manners in the sort of 
mundane sense, but the concept of manners, the concept that you have ways of interacting with each other that allow us to, to, to live together despite disagreement is very important. And I always think of this line in Lawrence of Arabia where King Faisal, Alec Guinness, Prince Faisal Alec Guinness says, you know, for Lawrence, compassion is an, is an, mercy is an obsession. For me, it's merely good manners. You may, deter, you may decide which of the two is more reliable. Good manners are reliable. Like the, the, one of the problems, I think, with a kind of the, the kind of social justice, and I don't say that in a dismissive way or a kind of pejorative way, but sort of social justice zeitgeist is that it's it is absolutist in, in, in an almost comical way. Right. Where you can't like I can't be on the same I can't be in the same podcast as Shaddy because Shaddy did X. So Shaddy once said X about I'm not going to get into the hummus. Shaddy knows what I'm talking about, okay? Shaddy made a statement about hummus. I don't want to get into it. There are people who say, I should not be on the same pant platform as Shaddy because of the hummus statement, right? But if wait, you wait, take that, just, like... Are you, I just want a point of clarification. Are you serious that there are actually people because of the hummus tweet, which is actually a real tweet that I wrote, and some people <laughs> really didn't like it? This is not just like something that Jonathan is joking about, but I'm curious if there are actually people... Who like see that as like morally disqualifying? I mean, yes, I mean, you want joke. me to name names? I can't. I, no, I no, think, don't name no, names. No, I think I'm... there are. I actually think that you know, I think there are for the homeless thing. But let's take it like let's bring it one level closer to like politics. Just one level, like one, you know, one ratchet down. Uh, okay, but for the outsiders, guys, what is the horrible thing that Shaddy had to say about hummus? I what can't, is I, I'm not going to say it. Shaddy, um, own it, own it, sir. Say it out loud. Okay, it, it, it wasn't meant to be taken seriously. I happened, I was on vacation. I happened to go to an Israeli restaurant in Amsterdam and I thought their hummus was um, very good. And I didn't think a lot about the political implications of what I would say, but I made a comment and I almost wanted to say it to kind of like say, well, you know, Arab, we Arabs, we shouldn't, we should be better. We shouldn't be shown up by Israeli restaurants on our original food. But let's be honest, Israeli restaurants do make really good hummus, something to that effect. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't well thought out, obviously. <laughs> okay. All I know is Shaddy's the guy who invented in my book the phrase "R.I.P. My Mentions." <laughs> R.I.P. My Mentions. So, but my point is that if you can't, if you can't, like it's manners that allow us to interact with one another. I'm a professor. I'm not any smarter than a lot of other people in our society, et cetera, et cetera. But it's pretty clear to me that we have very divergent customary moralities in our society and one of the problems is that both sides or if there's more than one side every side seems to think that everybody in the country should have to abide by its sense of morality and they're not taking advantage of like a federated system that is partially designed to have a diversity of views co coincide with you know uh, coexist with one another right in, in, in an administrative and legal level right so I think people, it's it's a sense of not necessarily humility. I think humility is important, Matthew, but I can be dead certain that abortion is wrong. I can be dead certain that homosexuality is wrong, right? But it's manners. It's a sense of etiquette and politeness and commitment to like um, certain gestures 
in public life and a certain a, a, a willingness to sit down and break bread with, literally, sometimes just share a meal with someone who I disagree with strongly, that allows us to coexist. And if we go around always expressing every one of our moral certainties in the most strident way and demanding that everybody around us either accept that or go to hell, we can't live with one another. You can maybe in a homogenous society, but not in one that's very diverse like ours. So Jonathan, by by God's providence, you have brought us to the core question of this uh, of this podcast, which is how we live together with deep difference. And that is, and I think there is much more to be done in political theory and political theology around manners and custom. And, and I think you're absolutely right. It's more than just humility. It's um, because you can have a real conviction that you're, you're unwilling to, um, to apologize for, but being willing to, uh, you could use the word forbearance, um, that you're willing to bear difference uh, in your presence, difference that is deep, that is right up in your face, that's difficult. And that is something that, you know, Muslim moral philosophers have looked at, Christian moral philosophers have looked at. And I think what we're seeing in our contemporary American political culture is um, a lack of political manners. Quit to, I mean, to put it in that way, uh, that the sort of basic understanding of uh, forbearance and willing to break bread and sit down uh, and have these deep convictions uh, and talk with one another. And in a way, this conversation has to do with actually historical manners, um, being, being a person who's willing to forbear and sit with our ancestors and have a moral conversation with them rather than simply tearing them down or burning them. We have to recognize these human beings, uh, they are fellow humans. <laughs> they're, they're our brothers and sisters, and we must we still have to break bread with them and, and acknowledge that they're not a, they're not moral aliens. They're not completely other than us. Um, it, our, our times and histories are contingent and and we could be connected to that. And so um, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's, we've got a lot more to talk about here, but uh, I do know we got to, got to wrap this up a little. Shadi, do you have uh, something else? But uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Jonathan, for, for digging in. And, you know, Shadi and I try to tackle difficult subjects um, in our own writing and our conversations. And, and uh, while there's, you know, more disagreement to be explored here, um, I, I just really appreciate the 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 courage and the care that you have uh, in in tackling these kinds of conversations, and it's it's a rare thing in the modern academy. And I know you've taken a lot of hits um, for that, and uh, it's um it's noteworthy. And and I'm grateful you made time for us today. Yeah, um, amen to that. And I'll I'll just say that <clears throat> I hope that this episode can be a kind of model of how to talk about a very difficult topic. I wasn't sure exactly how it would go. I don't think it's common in mainstream podcasts to have such a deep dive around slavery, religion, and moral progress. We did it, and um, <laughs> and I think it is doable. And we wouldn't have been able to do that without um, Jonathan Brown. So thanks again, Jonathan, for, for being a part of us and joining us. I thought it was fascinating, and to our listeners, I hope you all enjoyed it too. 
Um, so thanks for listening uh, to Zealots at the Gate, um, dear listeners. If you like what you heard today with Jonathan, like this is one of the episodes where we would really love to get your feedback and see how you react to the various points and questions we raise. Oh, Jonathan's <laughs> shaking his head. Well, no, no, you guys can have the feedback. You can share positive feedback with me. Sure. Okay. But we'll don't share the negative feedback. Yeah. Deal. Deal. Um, and, you know, if you like this episode, um, check out our other episodes and check out our host, Comment Magazine, at comment.org. You can also find us on Twitter at my handle, Shadi Hamid, and Matthew Kamink, first name, last name. Note the Dutch spelling. Um, and you can also use the hashtag ZealotsPod. We do regularly check that. And you can also send us an email at zealots at comment.org. So, Please do feel free to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminaries, Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Friends, Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine. It is produced by the wonderful Miss Allie Crummy. Uh, audience strategy by Matt Crummy and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I am Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye.